the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? <laughs> Welcome back to the Neon Confidential Podcast. This episode is such a good one. In honor of National Infertility Awareness Week, which technically isn't until the last week of April, I wanted to launch this episode a week beforehand to bring awareness to all things infertility. And who knows, maybe after you listen, it'll spark interest so you can take some of these tips and put them into action during National Infertility Week next week. I knew as soon as I met Jess, who you'll hear from in this episode, I had to have her on the show, especially after seeing a few of my close friends struggling to get pregnant, going through the unthinkable of having a miscarriage and the intense psychological trauma that goes along with that to listening to my girlfriends discussing freezing their eggs or at least thinking about it. I knew having the founders of the Nevada Fertility Advocates on to discuss their mission to support the more than 60,000 Nevadans currently struggling to get pregnant or carry to term would bring such great takeaways to a topic that is really under discussed. We had both Jessica and Amanda on. It was my first time ever having two guests on at the same time. And I do want to just know that this episode is not just for the ladies. A little known fact is that in one third of infertile couples, men are actually the cause of the infertility. So we get into that among other topics, like what you can do if you have questions about infertility, when you should seek out a healthcare practitioner, if you do want to get pregnant, how to test for infertility issues, and how Nevada fertility advocates can assist you with things like access to providers, support groups, and financial resources related to infertility. Both of these ladies are serious badasses and took their personal struggles with infertility and turned them into action, assisting with getting laws considered for employers to cover medical issues related to infertility and bringing awareness to fertility assistance. This includes men and women with infertility issues, many LGBTQ individuals and single individuals who desire to raise children. With that, please welcome Jessica and Amanda to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Today's guests are from Nevada Fertility Advocates, and I just want to first note how important of a topic this is for me as a woman in her early 30s to cover, so let's jump in on these intros. Today in studio, we have former Mrs. Nevada and founder of Nevada Fertility Advocates, Amanda Klein, and Jessica Woods, who is the president of the Nevada Fertility Advocates. During Amanda's reign as Mrs. Nevada in 2020, she started the nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting more than 60,000 Nevadans struggling with the disease of infertility. She spent several years in healthcare marketing for top hospitals here in Las Vegas and was also the co-chair of the Nevada Leadership Board for the American Cancer Society and during the 2021 Nevada legislative session introduced AB 274, the Medically Necessary Fertility Preservation Bill. Meanwhile, Jessica Woods, MPH, RDH, has spent the last two decades as a clinician, speaker, mentor, and public health advocate. She has several accolades in the dental hygienist sect, including being the recipient of the Nevada Dental Hygienist of the Year Award for her advocacy efforts and expanding opportunities for dental hygienists. After being personally impacted by infertility, she shifted her advocacy focus to supporting the one in eight Nevadans struggling with the disease of infertility. She has served as the president of Nevada Fertility Advocates since 2021, where she has been instrumental in increasing community awareness, supporting legislation to provide coverage for fertility preservation for those undergoing cancer treatment, and advocating to employers within the state on the importance of offering infertility benefits to employees to increase access to care. 
ladies. <laughs> First of all, I am so excited for how this totally like serendipitously worked out. I think speaking this into the ether can change the conversation around infertility struggles and treatment options that are available. So with that, welcome to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Thank you. So, Thank you. <laughs> I do want to start with the basics. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding for a lot of women around just like what is infertility? So I can tell you for me, my infertility stems from a birth defect. So I was actually born with the condition that I have, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and, you know, Jess has her own battle, but infertility can be a, a myriad of things. Yeah. So for me, it was an endocrine disorder that was undiagnosed for a long time until I started to try for a family and started to uncover some of those things. So yeah, it can look very different. And until I experienced it myself and started talking and opening up about it, I didn't realize how many other people were struggling as well. What do you guys do to help with infertility? So um, Nevada Fertility Advocates was founded in 2020 when I was USOA Mrs. Nevada. And about five months into my reign, the world shut down. Oh my <laughs> and I was like, well, this isn't good timing. Um, so rather than going out in the community and making appearances and doing the things that typical beauty queens do, I said, what can I do from home? And so I opened my laptop and I um, you know, went to the state treasury website and I started a company. And you know, with Jess's amazing help, about a year later, we got our 501c designation. Um, so we are a, a formal nonprofit. And what we do is we give back to the more than 60,000 Nevadans currently struggling with the disease of infertility. Number one, a lot of people don't realize that infertility is a disease. It's been classified as the World Health Organization by the World Health Organization as a disease. And it's any any time when a, a woman is unable to either get pregnant or carry a pregnancy to term. Got it. And so if someone is struggling with infertility, and they do they come to you guys like for do they do they go to the doctor they, do they find out like walk us through how you guys kind of you spread awareness about infertility and and the the things that people can do to help themselves through that journey right so we always recommend that you speak with your clinician so uh, most times women have their OBGYN, their primary care physician um you know we have found that there's still a lot of education in those practices for them to better understand infertility but certainly talking to your ob is is a good start and so you know if someone's struggling with infertility they're like okay i understand now that i can't get pregnant how long do you suggest that somebody waits? Cause you know, like, first of all, how difficult is it to get pregnant? Like, you know, and so it's like, how long of a journey is it like, if you're trying to get pregnant for a year, you should go see your clinician. Yeah. You, you, you're the <laughs> clinician in the group. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think it looks different for everybody. I know that some of the guidelines that, you know, some of the professional associations and, and things say. Uh, typically, I think if you're over the age of 35, they say if you're trying for six months, then that is when you should um, seek uh, care from a practitioner. And then under 35 would be a year. But, you know, when you're going through it and you're ready to get pregnant and have children, that can be very long. And so I think that's one of the things that Amanda and I are very passionate about is being your own advocate. Like if that is wearing on your mental health, like waiting that long, then I don't see the harm in 
you know, seeking out care earlier or even doing things preventatively. Why are people having issues with infertility these days? Like are more people experiencing infertility um, or, or, or are more people just talking about it? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think uh, many people are waiting longer to have children. You know, more and more of us are career driven. And so it's something that, you know, we put off till later on finding a match or, or what have you. And then I also think that, you know, we've seen more people that are, you know, in the limelight, you know, celebrities and things like that, that are experiencing it and talking about it. So I think that's helping to break down some of that stigma. And I know, you know, Amanda, uh, you know, in her position as Miss Nevada, she, you know, she was very open about talking about it. And that's actually once I started to have my personal struggle, she's who I turned to because I knew she was going through it. And so I think that, you know, that helps people. And that's why we're, you know, here and wanted to share our story for anybody else who might be struggling in silence. Just to like catch everybody up too. So Jessica and I were both at a wine and cheese event <laughs> recently. This is literally how this happened. Um, and I have said on the podcast before, I'm like, please don't pitch yourself to me. Like I can't stay Cause like I'll have some like really weird, like people just want to come on and talk about their breakup. I'm like, I'm the only person that gets to talk about my breakup. Okay? <laughs> but it's just like, some things just don't really make sense. I've had like poker players and like, while well, that's interesting, you know, I had some guy, I was like, okay, why would you like to be on the podcast? And he's like, Google me. I'm like, Billy. Um, but when you approached me and told me about what you did, I automatically was like, I really want to talk about this because for instance, um, I have a girlfriend that went and just, she just froze her eggs mm -hmm. and she shared it to her, but she shared it to her close friends stories. Like, I feel like there's still a lot of maybe not like taboo, but people aren't, don't want to openly talk about it for, in my opinion, maybe it's fear of something like that. Like we're waiting longer because we're career driven to have children. And maybe it's like intimidating for a guy to see that someone's thinking about those things like, oh, she's freezing her eggs because she's like getting older. <laughs> um, and so that's the first one. The second one is I have a um, girlfriend who has two children by the same surrogate. And it's, you know, I've just noticed some of the feedback when I'm around her because she clearly doesn't look like she just, you know, popped out two kids. And so it's one of those things where they're like, you just had two kids where it's not like a compliment like oh my god you look so great it's almost like this very confused look and i i know that that hurts her because i think if she had the choice she would have obviously wanted to carry her her children to term so first i like you know later i want to talk about maybe like the sensitivities around like what you should and shouldn't say um to women just in general with their pregnancy journeys. But I do want to open up the floor for each of you to talk about your personal fertility journeys. Cause I think, you know, if I'm noticing this, that I think a lot of people would relate to your personal stories. So, um, my husband and I got married in 2015. We were best friends for years. And I would always say to my girlfriends, like, you should date him. He's amazing. Oh my God. He's so, he's such a great guy. He's got his act together. And, and then I realized that I was pitching my future husband who I clearly was in love with myself. Um, so after years and years of friendship, we started dating and were engaged within 10 months. We were married the following year, just really quick. And, um, you know, about a year into our marriage, we were at a friend's wedding and we were like, Oh, 
I think we're ready to start a family. And we just kind of thought that that's how it happened, right? Like this, the whole like stork comes down and you know, you get a nice bottle of wine and do the, do the horizontal mambo. And then nine months later, there's a kid, right? right? Yep. And I think the reality for so many of us now is that unfortunately that's not the case. Um, I had my first miscarriage 10 weeks into my first pregnancy. I got pregnant right away. Um, but unfortunately, you know, didn't really make it out of that first trimester. And I remember being at the, the doctor's office and, um, the technician was just completely cold to the situation, just didn't seize it all day long. And so, you know, for her, it was work and every day. And for us, it was the greatest trauma of our lives yep. up until that point. And so, um, that was a real eye opener for both of us to say, wow, this, this is real. And we never even thought in a million years that this could happen. And did you, did, you know, either or both of you tell people that you were pregnant at that point? We, we told very, very few people, yeah. um, because you kind of hear, well, you know, hold off, hold up. But I don't think anyone ever explained why you don't tell people right away. Right. And I don't necessarily believe in that either. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's a personal choice of, you know, how open and honest you want to be with those around you, depending on what kind of support system you have. Sure. Um, so after that first miscarriage, we waited a year, got pregnant again, had another miscarriage. Oh my gosh. And this time I knew what was happening. I was like, something's wrong. We got to go to the hospital. And then the third time, unfortunately, at that point, we had gone to see a specialist and were essentially misdiagnosed. And we're told to keep trying naturally before IVF. And the trauma of that third miscarriage, in my opinion, could have been completely avoided. Wow. Yeah. So would you say to people, especially now after, after going through that, <clears throat> that like, would you even tell anyone to try naturally? Like, does it make sense for people to freeze their eggs? I think definitely, you know, talk to your doctor, you know, of course, people get pregnant naturally still. And that's fantastic. Um, but you know, there's, there's a sense, a certain amount of planning that can take place, having open and honest conversations with your doctors in your twenties, you know, being honest about, Hey, um, you know, I, I think I have some side effects or symptoms or, or, you know, tell me more about PCOS. Tell me more about endometriosis. Tell me about these diseases so that I can educate myself and look out for certain signs and symptoms. Um, you know, I think that's a conversation that a lot of people are having now. Um, for me, like I said, it was a birth defect. So, you know, I kicked myself for a really long time. I was like, I've been on birth control my entire life. <laughs> why, why? Um, but because of that, once we were diagnosed by an amazing clinician in town, um, she said, look, Amanda, I think you guys need to go through IVF. You need to create embryos and then you need to transfer to a, sur to a surrogate. And um, for me, as hard as IVF was and not being able to carry like your friend, I could talk for days about that. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was a weight lifted off of my shoulders because my body was no longer in my mind the problem. Right. And so what was the birth defect? Like, do other people have that? How common is it? It's very common. So it's called a bicornuate uterus. It basically means that one side of my uterus is flat. And so there just isn't enough like air supply and oxygen to the baby. Oh. Um, but uh, while it's very common, mine's a severe case. So women go and have healthy pregnancies with a bicornuate uterus all the time. What are the tests to figure that out? And is that is there a test that you would recommend like figuring that out before you just try to get pregnant? Because like you said, if you're going through three miscarriages, 
when you could have just maybe run some tests and gotten that diagnosis beforehand? Is there like a certain test that people can take? Oh, I've had like 7,000 tests. <laughs> <laughs> I went through seven surgeries before I was properly diagnosed. Um, so there's a number of tests. I couldn't tell you the names of them off the top of my head. Um, but you know, they check your fallopian tubes. They, they check everything. And, you know, for me, I would have gone through IVF sooner. Um, had I known that this was going to be such a challenge, I remember my doctor telling me in my twenties that I had a bicornuate uterus, but it was nothing to worry about. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So really just like pay attention to those things from, from your twenties. And I'm sure like we were talking a little bit before the episode, like I was diagnosed with PCOS also in my early twenties. And I recently just got my blood work done and they were like, you've got a really high level of, I can't remember. It starts with an A. Um, some sort of hormone. And he's like, I think she said, I think you need to go to your OBGYN and get this checked out. And I'm like, I know it's PCOS um, again. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but thank you for sharing that. And now you've got a baby. Now I have Emma, who is my two and a half year old daughter and she's wonderful. I guess she's my husband's daughter too. But, <laughs> you know. um, and, and Emma and Cora, Jessica's daughter are about six weeks uh, apart. Oh my age. God. So they're besties. Cool. Um, and so we're going through the terrible twos together right now. <laughs> I've heard how exciting that is. <laughs> we don't sleep at all. Like there's not like we don't sleep much. It's we don't sleep. So not to scare anybody from not having kids, but prepare yourself mentally. <laughs> I literally just saw this meme yesterday that said that grown women are just, uh, we never outgrew our terrible twos. We're just like five, two terrorists that like terrorize men. <laughs> They deserve it. Though. They do deserve it. They deserve every second of it. Um, okay, so Jessica, can you share your yeah? Journey? So my my story looked a little bit different than Amanda's. Um, you know, my husband and I had been married for you know about seven years and did the whole travel and enjoy each other thing, and um, and then I think same thing. We were like, oh, we were in Bali actually, and it was Valentine's Day, and I'm like, I think we're ready to have a baby, and you know, we, you know, did the damn thing, and and I'm like, I'm gonna get pregnant in Bali. How like magical is that gonna be? You, you know, your kid Bali. You yeah. Know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it didn't happen, and then the next month it didn't happen, and the next month it didn't happen, and um, you know, and I, I think like in hindsight, like I kind of knew there was something going on. I hadn't taken birth control for a long time. My husband and I had been married you know, seven years, never had an, an, you know, scare or anything like that. And so, you know, a lot of people, the, the questions, oh, you know, after you get married, when are you going to have kids? When, you, you know, it's like, it never stops. Even now that I've had a kid, it's like, when are you going to have a second kid? And, you know, I think I was like, well, I don't really know. Sure. If we want it, want kids. And I think in a sense, looking back, it was kind of like this, like protective measure, like, because I kind of sensed that there might be something wrong and maybe just didn't want to accept that. Um, but after a year I did, um, get pregnant naturally. And, um, after about <clears throat> nine weeks, I ended up having a miscarriage mm -hmm. and I had a very similar experience to Amanda where I felt like the provider was pretty cold and I was like devastated, you know, like I had been trying so long and it finally happened and, you know, to go into your first visit and then tell you, Hey, things aren't measuring properly. We're not, there should be a heartbeat by now. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing that, like come back in two weeks and then having to like sit there for two weeks, like not knowing what's going on. Um, and I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe That's a it's a lot of psychological trauma. Yes. Yeah. 
Totally. Like, and I think that's another thing that people don't talk about is that in these days, I think more people are sharing when they have miscarriages, but not really like the psychological trauma that comes with that. So you said that you have to wait for two weeks and then what was next? Yeah. And so then I came back and you know, the, there was no changes in the measurement, still no heartbeat. And so um, had to make the decision whether like I wanted to go in for a DNC and have, you know, the procedure done. And, you know, I was just like, couldn't even catch my breath. I just was not expecting all of this. And, um, you know, I was hoping for like, I wanted it to just have naturally, like I didn't want to have to go in and get put to sleep. And as a, you know, working person, I'm sure, you know, busy, like, you know, yeah. person you realize like okay I got it my husband has to take the day off work I got to take some time off work like I think it would just be easier if it like happened naturally and it still didn't and like for a few weeks and um during the time my um, husband's grandfather was like deathly ill he was like and and so it was just a really really traumatic time and then you know my husband and I were both the like first grandchildren and his grandpa was very sick and he was very close to his grandparents. And so it was like, I didn't want to make that time about me. And so I didn't tell anybody. Oh my gosh. You know, cause I didn't want to take away from, from that. And, uh, you know, and then also like just that extra, like, like, uh, looking at me and asking me questions. I just wasn't ready to deal with that. Um, so I, I went through, um, you know, the miscarriage and, and then uh, went and saw an endo uh, reproductive endocrinologist because I was just like, I, I just don't think I could go through that again. I need to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so went through like a myriad of testing and, um, and uncovered that I had PCOS and uh, my progesterone was very low. Um, my, I don't, you know, I don't know, produced progesterone, you know, it's a very complex disease, still learning a lot about it, but I'm basically told that if I don't take, um, progesterone supplements as soon as I'm pregnant that I won't be able to carry to term. And so, um, after we, you know, we continued to, we ruled out everything, you know, all my anatomy, you know, looked healthy. And so mine came down to a lot of hormonal imbalances and, you know, again, looking back, I, you know, for 10 years, probably at least I, I had been telling doctors my symptoms and, you know, them just doing blood work, thinking it's thyroid or what have you. So that's where, you know, there is that education piece, even for our OBGYNs to like learn more about this. Cause I think some of this could have been pinpointed back then, but nonetheless, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Um, and then after six more months of trying, um, I finally, I, and, you know, having some progesterone and some help with my hormones, I was able to conceive naturally. Um, it was kind of that, that story where it was like, we were going on vacation and I'm like, if I don't get pregnant here, like we were going to come back and start IVF mm -hmm. and, um, you know, maybe, you know, who knows? So I, I got to conceive her in Taiwan. So it wasn't Bali, but <laughs> her nickname is Thai. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I call her my little bow bun because, you know, that's, yeah, that's so those so are right there. But that's good to hear that like infertility doesn't necessarily just mean IVF. I think like even in my head, that's what I correlate that with. And that, you know, if I have PCOS, that that means that I have infertility like that. I've never thought of it like that. I always thought you needed IVF, but it sounds like there's solutions based on people's cases. And so the most important thing to do is go to get yourself checked out and make sure everything's good. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, really dialing in my hormones. I, 
I did a test that was called the Dutch test, which I swear by it's like, um, it's not a blood test. Cause actually they always start with your blood test. All my blood work came back looking fine. Uh, once I did the Dutch test, it was like very apparent that I had PCOS. What is the Dutch test? So it stands for like dried urine. I don't know. What okay, it all stands for, but, <laughs> um, but basically what you do is at a certain point in your cycle, like right after you ovulate for, um, 48 hours, you take five urine samples and so they're able to track like the spikes and dips of your hormones and see you know and compare them to how they should look at that point in your cycle um for me like my estrogen was very high my testosterone was very high and then um my uh, progesterone was very low some you know people look all different ways when they have pcos and so um finding treatment that can kind of balance those things taking you know blocking my testosterone from producing too much and sometimes when you when you um, address one of the hormones it helps to balance they're kind of like a like lovers that you know move up and down got it that's so interesting mm -hmm. and so i know that um we covered how each of you kind of got into fertility in your own journeys. Um, but I really want to get into some common like fertility myths. Um, and either of y'all can jump in and either dispel or confirm. Um, so the first one is infertility is always the woman's problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, completely inaccurate. Um, so it could be the woman's um, something going on with the woman it could be something going on with the man it could also very easily be both and it's very much 50 50. i mean i i ask doctors this all the time like how much of it is uh, a female versus male and it's usually about half and half of what a lot of people see if not and i and i feel like people especially don't like women are just now getting to the point where we're comfortable like speaking on infertility but i feel like men it's a whole different ball game so you only hear from one side of the spectrum, but to know that, um, you know, both partners, like I almost feel like if the woman's gonna go get tested, the man should go get tested at the same time. I don't even know if that exists because I haven't been in a situation, but it sounds like you guys are both yeah. shaking your heads. So, but yeah, um, yeah I, I think women typically seek out care more often than men do. And For I think sure. that's across the board, like in any condition, um, but, the endo uh, reproductive endocrinologist that we, we both went to the same one in town and that is part of their workup. So when I went, obviously my, my, you know, we got a lot more parts and things like that. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, they do the full workup on you and all the testing, but my, my husband, he did have to do, you know, they did a sperm analysis on him. So they do address both partners. So, and it's, so, I don't know if that's standard of care everywhere, but like, it, it really should, should be. And like, that's what they're testing. Like it's so much easier for men to test, right? Cause they just like go into a room and, you know, beat their meat yeah, <laughs> right? and they get their sperm tested. But we have to like, what does the process look like for women to check? Yeah. So I'm trying to remember everything, but, um, I know for me, it started with a blood test, like on a certain day of your cycle, I think it was day three. I'm like, Hey, doctors don't like roll your eyes at me. No, I, can't I, I can tell you because I've done it. It's the first day of your period, okay, or at first. least that's when I, I called to tell them. And mm -hmm. then I had to go in that day. Okay. Yeah. So they do some blood work because they want to test your levels at that point. And then I think a few weeks later they do another one. Um, and then they do an ultrasound where they put like some like saline in there and like flush to see that there's no blockage and just like everything's flowing and you know, the, the eggs can 
you know, go to where they need to. And then I do remember this one because it was a little bit uncomfortable. The it's, one where it makes you feel like you're gonna pee your pants. Yeah, like they put the catheter up there and like blow the balloon up. Ugh, yeah. yeah. And then um, they take, you know, some x-rays. So you have to like, you have that balloon like dilating your cervix and then you gotta like turn to one side and they're taking the x-ray. So I remember that one was a little uncomfortable because you know, di the dilation of the, the cervix part. Um, yep, but I remember that too. It's everything's so much harder for women. It really is. <laughs> like, they're just like, oh, walk in, a couple of strokes, and then <laughs> on their way. Exactly. <laughs> for like three weeks We're having to go through all struggling. this. Struggling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Typical. So the next, the next myth that I want to bust, um, infertility is caused by the woman's age. No, I mean, there, you can speak to it more clinically. I think that there is a, an age component potentially, but I think one of the things that makes me angry is hearing that you are, your eggs are geriatric, right? So if you are a woman 35 yeah. or over, your eggs are geriatric. Yeah. Everyone says that they're like, oh, her clock's ticking. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like, I think that's another reason why people think that infertility is caused by the woman's age. Right. Yeah. But look at Amanda's example. I mean, if she would have tried in her early twenties, she probably would have had the same outcome. And exactly. likewise, cause I was symp symptomatic with PCOS in my early twenties. Um, and you know, for all those years, not you, you know, using birth control or protection and with my husband and, um, you know, I was in my late twenties. Right. So, um, but you know, as you, but you know, that's not to eliminate that age doesn't factor in there. Right. There can be, there can be things with egg quality and things like that. But, um, I think there's certainly like uh, protective measures that you can put in place, you know, having healthy lifestyle and things that can help make those eggs a little more. <laughs> right. I guess, well, that's the other thing. If you, so let's say that you're going to do IVF. Is there like, I mean, obviously just being a healthier person, but like, does it, does it have an impact on like either your egg or uh, for a guy, your sperm, if you're like not healthy or you're drinking or that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it can cause, you know, that's why they say drinking can cause infertility. It can have impacts on your sperm count, your egg quality. Um, and then, you know, there's also those good subset of people that it's just unexplained. I mean, mm -hmm. many people go through all the testing, go through the process and it's just inexplained fertility. You know, you can't, they can't, they aren't able to pinpoint what it is. I've heard that, that it's like 40%, um, you know, could be caused by male infertility. 40% could be women. And then there's 20% that like, no matter how much testing, the doctors just can't identify what you know what's happening mm -hmm. and so i think in those cases the ivf is like the treatment mm -hmm. um which brings me to the third kind of myth but the number one solution for a woman suffering with infertility is to freeze her eggs well it wouldn't be if she was suffering with infertility it would be if you know she wanted to preserve her eggs at their you know highest quality probably in your 20s um which there's a lot that goes into that i think as someone who's gone through two rounds of IVF, which is nothing to some women, um, you know, it is, it's hard. It's really hard. It's not as simple as, oh, I have $30,000. I'm just going to do IVF and freeze my eggs. Um, you know, you are a human pincushion for a number of weeks. Um, you know, you bloat, your hormones are all over the place. And for, for us, you know, we went through that first round of IVF um, and uh, it didn't work. I ovulated early. So, you know, my doctor really had to convince us to go back through it because my husband was like, I can't, we can't keep doing this. Like, I can't watch you just inject yourself with drugs all day, every day. 
Um, so I think for a woman who wants to freeze her eggs, um, you know, that's great. And I think that we need to have all of the options at our disposal at a young age, especially if we are very career focused. Mm -hmm. Um, but the financial piece of is one of it. And then, you know, just knowing that like, it's not as simple as, you know, going and getting your nails done. Like it is life changing for that period of time, but it's absolutely worth it if you can get healthy eggs to freeze. I put the question box on Instagram and like the number one thing that I got, which I already knew before I put up that question box was at what age should women think about freezing their eggs? And you kind of touched on it a little bit, mm -hmm. but if you can expand either of you on, on that. I mean, I think it's a personal choice, right? I mean, so one of the things that we do is we work with the state legislature on AB 274, which is the medically necessary fertility preservation bill. And in that scenario, you know, we know someone who was 19 years old when they were diagnosed with breast cancer and they had to make that decision while also being told you have breast cancer. They also had to make the decision to come out of pocket. Their family had to make the decision to come out of pocket to preserve her eggs at that moment in time. So for her, she was a teenager, but for, you know, somebody else when they're in their late twenties or mid twenties and, you know, really focused on their career, that might be the right time or someone in their thirties who hasn't found the right person yet. And you're saying because like chemo affects your egg quality. Is that the same? Like, can men freeze their sperm? Yes. That's a thing. So yes. like if a, a guy was going through chemo or something, it would be recommended that he freezes his sperm. Most definitely. Yes. Got it. Um, and so, and I guess that's the, so for, for women, and I just remember this from like the limited like sex ed classes that like we had, cause no one really talks about this. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good point and something that, you know, you know, down the road we might add as kind of one of our pillars of work is like, I think you spend so much, you know, they scare you and they're like, you're going to get pregnant if you touch each other, you know? Right. And it's like, we spend so many years trying not to get pregnant yep. that it's like, you just think you're, it's going to be easy. And when it doesn't happen, you're like, whoa, what the heck? But if we started talking about some of these conditions and the possibilities, I, you know, I get it not to be fear mongering or anything, but here's some signs like when you should talk to your doctor, like when something might be of concern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, so for, for women, and this is the part where I'm like, I think I kind of remember this. We don't produce more eggs. It's like what we're born with is right. like what we have. And that decreases like obviously every time you have a cycle. Um, but for, for men, they are constantly producing sperm, Yeah. right? Like, Again. <laughs> mil millions of sperm. And it's like, I, I don't know how many eggs we have. Do you guys know how many we're born with? It depends on it, it. That's the thing that, you know, there's no cut and dry answer for a lot of these questions. Like you are born with potentially tens of thousand or more eggs, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't know if you have a more clinical response no, to it. They, I mean, that's part of the testing when you, you know, do your like workup is they see the amount of your eggs. And I think they compare that to like your age and where you're at and kind of what the average is. But I mean, that doesn't mean that you don't have five eggs left and those are good ones and you can't still get pregnant. You right. know, it's just decreases your chances because as time goes on and you start to you know lose those eggs each cycle, mm -hmm. then you're it's it, the time is dwindling. And so can you guys talk about if somebody were to freeze their eggs, that process and what that looks like? So I think people are really interested in that. Mm -hmm. We were kind of talking um, off air that I have a girlfriend, a few girlfriends actually that have chosen to freeze their eggs 
And they both shared it on their close friends' stories. Um, and that there's like almost a like male intimidation factor where like if a guy sees that, he's like, oh, this girl wants to like start a family. Um, or, you know, it's just it's their private journey, right? People don't want um there's I feel like there's also a lot of myths around like the science behind um IVF and implantation. And like, so I guess the first question is. And one of the questions that I got in the question box was, um, can you choose like the characteristics of your baby from getting an embryo? Okay. Let's start with the boy problem. So if a guy doesn't want to date you because he thinks you're too focused on having a family one day in the future, that's not your guy. <laughs> totally. Could not agree like, more. Can we just start there? <laughs> yeah, that's right, not yeah. a man. That's a boy. Totally. And cool story, bro. Like, go enjoy your life and do your thing. But that's not the person, you know, don't worry about that. Right. First and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, so when I went through IVF, we we didn't freeze. I didn't freeze my eggs. I froze my embryos. So I got a certain count of high quality eggs that then they were able to um, inject my husband's sperm and turn into embryos. Then what we did is called PGS testing. So it's a genetic test. Um, it is an additional cost. Um, but one of the things that you do rule, you, you do rule out certain diseases. Um, but one of the things you can find out through the PGS test is the um, sex of the embryo. Got it. Yeah. But not necessarily like, oh, I want blue to have eyes. Yeah, you can no. pick their eye color, their, you know, hair color or anything like that. Like it's just, the, you can there tell. There might be that in some lab somewhere, but yeah. not standard part of the IVF. No. Process. And you were able to freeze embryos because, like, so someone that wants to get pregnant and isn't able to and has a partner, they can freeze their embryos. But as a woman that, like, is in their, you know, early thirties, I'll be mid thirties soon, but <laughs> I would just choose to freeze my eggs. Yes. And so what does that process look like? Because I've heard that it's, I mean, to me, it's, I feel like it's very daunting. Well, you'd still go through IVF mm -hmm. and you'd still have a, um, retrieval, an egg retrieval, um, which I'll tell you a funny story. So after our second round of IVF, um, I woke up from my egg retrieval and you, you know, you're kind of out of it because you go under anesthesia and my husband, you know, looked at me and said, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm really hungry. Cause you know, you can't eat before you go in for anesthesia. And he said, well, what would you like? And I said, not eggs. <laughs> but I thought that was hilarious. But so, um, so after we did the egg retrieval, there was like a, I want to say it was like a 10 day process where every step along the way, they would tell us what the quality was and how, wow. you know, it would dwindle down. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I can only speak to my experience, not to a woman who froze their egg or who does is quality mean quantity. What does it mean? Quality? You no. Better so a lot of times, like say they take out 15 during the retrieval, um, you know, at that 10 day mark or whatever the, the, the mark is, all the eggs may not make it or be of quality that are worth preserving. Um, and then, you know, for someone who just wants their eggs, then you just would skip that 
fertilization piece where she's introducing the sperm into there. And then they, you know, they go to a bank and, you know, you have to pay to store them. And so on top of the cost of having the procedure done, now you have like a monthly fee of of having your eggs. Can you guys give a ballpark figure for what those fees are? Like if I, if a woman wanted Mm -hmm. to just freeze her eggs, how much does that cost? And then obviously the storing, the monthly storing cost. Well, I pay $50 a month to have my embryos frozen. Okay. Um, preserved. Um, you know, IVF varies widely. And I think this is one of the things that we're working really hard on is, um, standardizing and, and advocating for employers and, you know, the government to help support individuals in this cost. It's extremely expensive. Um, you know, I can tell you I was well over six figures. Um, wow. Now, granted, we did have to have a surrogate, but you know, you can easily be in $30,000 for one round of IVF. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's very expensive. Um, and then you think about the time away from work. Um, you know, people don't necessarily know what's going on with you. So when you're there, you could feel like a human pincushion and, you know, you're, you're trying to do your job, but you're also taking a ton of medication, um, and you're injecting that medication into your stomach or other parts of your body. Um, and then, you know, the time that you need to take off to do the retrieval and, and all of that. How much time do you have to take off to do an egg retrieval? It was usually just one day and I tried to do it later in the week so that I'd have like the weekend to recover. Mm -hmm. Some of the tests were pretty intense and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say to go back to work after that even. Mm -hmm. Um, but the retrieval requires anesthesia. Yeah. So, you know, you can't, you have to take off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Downtime for that. Yeah. But like a DNC, so if you had a miscarriage and you decided to, you know, have a DNC, which is the, you know, the procedure mm-hmm. to, um, to handle that, that situation, um, you know, I remember getting very sick afterwards and just having a lot of complications. So you need to make sure you take the time for yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pull up some of these questions that I got, um, in the question box. One of them is, is there a genetic correlation at all for those who struggle with fertility? So I think what this person means is if your mom has an issue with getting pregnant, does that automatically mean you're going to have an issue getting pregnant? Not automatic, but not automatically. Um, You know, I think some of the conditions, you know, like that if they're congenital, it's possible for them to be passed down, but um, just as much as you know, just because someone's really fertile doesn't mean you're going to be really fertile either. Right. Got it. Okay. And same with sisters. Cause I think, you know, we, we talk about like our moms, but it's also, well, how come my sister is, mm. can get pregnant so easily? And I can't, you know, I think people struggle a lot with that. So every journey is just individual. What is the maximum age that a woman can carry a child? So it, I mean, until they're in menopause, I think, mm-hmm. I think there's actually even been some cases, I don't know, some like I've seen in the headlines where like a mom carried the baby for the daughter and right. maybe they, you know, she did an artificial hormones that allowed her uterus to still do that. But typically, you know, once you're, you're reaching, you know, menopause age, then that's when. So just as long as you're healthy up to menopause, mm-hmm. are more people experiencing infertility or more people just talking about it? Well, I think, I think more people are talking about it. It's becoming less stigmatized. Like I said, you know, we have celebrities who are being more open about using surrogates and going through IVF and having miscarriages and things like that. Um, but I also do think, um, that, you know, there's a lot of environmental factors, you know, like, 
You have a lot of toxins in our food, you know, a lot of toxins in the air, things like that, that can be hormone disruptors like fragrances and those types of things. And um, I think there's still a lot of research to be done, but there's, you know, emerging research out there that's showing that these things do have impacts on our hormones and our hormones impact our fertility. So um, it can be environmental as well. So it's probably like a little bit of both, right. like people are obviously able to talk about it on bigger platforms. And then also there's, you know, toxins that just didn't exist maybe before. And pregnancy tests are much more effective now to where you can find out you're pregnant a lot earlier on. So, you know, people have probably been having miscarriages, you know, forever, and we're just more aware of it now because of the testing that we have. That brings me to like, what are some tips that you all have for either people who are aware that someone just went through a, mi a miscarriage, like what things should people not say right. to someone? Right. So about your friend who had the surrogate and people kind of look at her funny because, you know, she clearly hasn't just had two children. Mm -hmm. um, I totally get that. I mean, you know, it's, it's odd. It's strange. It's uncomfortable because people think you're just vain. And I'm like, Oh no, honey, that's not the case. I mean, yes, I'm vain, but <laughs> trust me, if I could do this myself, I would, I would. 100%. Like I think the correlation between a surrogate is because celebrities did it because they didn't want to mess up their body. Their right. body is their money maker. So that right. is right. That people just automatically think like, Oh, she has the money to do it. They don't ever think there's infertility. Right. Right. And so I think just being aware that, 99% of the time women are not doing this because they're concerned about, you know, changing their bodies. Um, but you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is we'll just relax, just relax, you know, don't stress so much. It'll happen when it happens. Like that's probably one of the things we tell people not to say to someone that they maybe are going through infertility or like if someone says well you're still young you're still young like you're I've, fine. Heard, I've heard that one before too yeah <laughs> or like saying well my cousin's sister's friend did this and so that's what you should do that doesn't help either so something that is really helpful if you either know a friend who's going through infertility or you suspect that they're going through infertility but they've never opened that up opened up to you about it is just be there for them and listen and you know maybe saying look, I just want you to know that I'm here for you as a friend. And if you ever just need to have, you know, a night out, grab a glass of wine, like whatever you need, I'm here for you. And then just don't talk and let them do the talking. Right. That's really smart advice. I think it's when people start trying to give advice is where it gets sticky. Because sometimes I know for me, like I just didn't, I, I was open to talking about it. I just didn't know how to open up about it. It's like, you know, you're having a glass of wine with your friends. Like you don't really want to like bring down the whole mood. So by like ha having that invitation, like, Hey, it seems like something's going on. Like just want you to know if there's anything you need to talk about. And then just, yeah, like she said, just listen. Um, I think also like, you know, I typically see it, you know, grandma's moms. And I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. So it's like, you know, as soon as you, you know, you're dating someone, it's like, when are you going to get married? And then as soon as you get married, when are you going to have kids? And then even after you have a kid now, it's like, when are you going to have another kid? And like, honestly, for me, like I am still kind of dealing with the trauma from like my last situation, you know, a year of trying, I had a very difficult pregnancy. And quite honestly, I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant until like, 
I was like 24 weeks. I had this weird thing in wow. my mind because I knew that that's like the youngest, like viable baby that ever lived. And so like, I just didn't want to like jinx anything. I didn't want to like tell people and then start getting excited and like then be let down. And so, you know, and then, you know, having hormone issues, I had a lot of postpartum, which, so it's just like, you know, I'm so thankful for my daughter, but it was not an easy journey to get there. And like, so when someone's like, so when are you going to have another one? It's just like, can you just leave me alone already? Like, so basically the advice is like, don't ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Like stay away from personal questions like that. Cause you just don't ever know what the other person's going through. Totally. And I mean, I get it. Cause like, I love to get to know people on like beyond the surface level. And so, you know, I can be very, you know, but I, I think too, in the way you ask it, I mean, some people still might, you know, if they're living in the moment, it still might be hard, but rather than saying, when are you going to have kids? Like, would you guys like to have kids? Right. Is, That's a good is one. a better question, mm -hmm. you know, because yes, I mean, in that might even open up them to, you know, talk about something. But, you know, for other people, if they're like in the thick of it, that might be triggering as well. And I know like totally. social media, you know, all the birth announcements, it's really hard around the holiday time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I have many friends that were, you know, struggling getting pregnant and they just had to get off social media because it was like every other post was like a gender reveal and pregnancy announcement and that's hard and that's okay like take the time for yourself to you know zone out and like focus on what you know what's best for you because there is that mental health piece that's you know I remember it was like when I found out like oh you know you can't have a baby unless you take that it's like you feel very broken you feel like this is what my body was intended to do and it's not doing it like there's something wrong with me I'm broken and I jumped into this like you know, blogs and everyone research and books. And I just became like obsessed with it's like never fixing, ending. Yeah. fixing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it really does wear on you mentally. And, and so, um, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, our organization about a fertility advocates, you know, we, um, are getting ready to launch our support group. So that way we can, we can bring together, you know, people who are experiencing the same thing. And like Amanda said, like, sometimes you just need a hug. Sometimes it just is so comforting to know that like someone understands what you're going through. And so, you know, we're hoping to offer that to the community through our support groups. That's the only, cause I've, you know, I've never had a pregnancy scare or anything like that, but I, I do feel like, but I have been through grief. And so I know what that's like. And I do think that it's individual for it's individualized for everyone who's going through their specific situation. But I, but as I'm getting older, I've noticed that my girlfriends who have had miscarriages and share that they've had a miscarriage that, um, I don't really know what to say to them. And so like, I think that that Nevada fertility advocates are offering that as a service that there's like classes. Like, I feel like that would be something that I'd want to go to with them, you know, because I think that there's a learning lesson for everyone to be there from a support. Cause you don't ever know, you don't want to ask the wrong thing. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So like you guys said, I think the the thing to do is just to say, I'm here for you. Right. Um, and so is that something you guys will welcome is that for people to come with somebody who's going through something like that? Is it like a beacon of support? <laughs> yeah, you know? of course. I mean, sometimes it's, scary to take the first step or go into a room with a bunch of people you don't know. And, you know, most likely you're going to get the most out of it if you open up and you share, which can be intimidating. So having that support system there is, is a great idea. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things like, you know, like Jessica said, there are certain things you can do. You can avoid the baby showers. You can avoid, 
you know, those moments of you want to be there for your friends. But I think for somebody who doesn't understand, you know, don't be upset if your friend doesn't show up to your baby's to yeah, your baby Don't shower. take it personally. Don't take it personally because it has not, it more than likely has nothing to do with you and everything to do with, you know, maybe what she's going through in that moment. Yeah. That's really good advice. Um, is there anything that I'm missing that you guys like feel like you want to discuss? I just, I think the one thing is, um, around employers in the state, I think, um, you know, Nevada, we are well positioned to really help, you know, those struggling with infertility. We have so many large employers that like one small change to their benefit offerings could impact so many people in the state you know we have big hotels that employ you know thousands and tens of thousands of people um and you know when you hear the cost of like you know ivf costing twenty thirty thousand dollars a lot of people automatically assume or employers you know hr executives they automatically assume that it's very expensive to offer this to um their employees but in actuality it's like pennies on the dollar you know because it is, you know, we talked about how common it is, but you know, when you have tens of thousands of employees, not every single person is going to use that benefit. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, one thing that we're working through. I mean, I think it would be, we can make big progress just by getting, you know, some of the top employers to offer this. And, um, you know, I know a lot of friends that they, they, they seek out employment, you know, based on fertility coverage or they stay with employers. So it's, you know, in this day and age where it's, you know, hard to find employees. Um, it's a benefit to both parties. Exactly. 100%. And so do Nevada fertility advocates, like, um, do you guys speak on that? Do you guys push legislation for those things? Are there, is there certain people that we can vote for? That are, <laughs> that's I know you can't get political, but yeah, you know, is, that, political. is that something that we can seek out? Yeah. So, you know, from a legislative perspective, our, our first um, kind of step to getting there is we are pushing towards fertility preservation. So those that are, uh, you know, pre childbearing years or of childbearing years, once they, um, you know, get their cancer diagnosis, that it would be considered medically necessary for them to freeze their sperm or their eggs prior to having their chemo or radiation treatment. So that would be um, the first step in our overall goal that every Nevadan would have that coverage. Um, I think there's about how many, 13 states? 19. 19 states that it's mandated within the state to have fertility coverage. And That's so great. it's our goal for Nevada to eventually be one of those. Awesome. Yeah. And it's not always IVF, you know, I mean, you may not need such a, a costly procedure and an invasive procedure. You may need uh, just a Clomid, you know, you may just need the diagnostic testing to be covered and a prescription. Yeah. And on that, you know, the, a lot of plans, they may cover the diagnostic portion of them. I know that was my particular case. Um, so they'll, they covered for me to have the testing, but once they said, yeah, you have infertility, it was like, but there's no coverage for anything. Right. So, um, you know, going the step beyond just that diagnose, diagnostic coverage and having the treatment options there as well. And like Amanda said, I mean, there's so much to it. And also, you know, it can save plans a lot of money because if people are having recurrent miscarriages, having to have DNCs, anesthesia, when it's like all they need, you know, maybe needed some like hormone therapy or something like that, that costs way less than having to have three surgeries. So, totally. Um, you know, doing more preventative and, and just making the diagnostic portion, you know, more standard and, you know, 
healthcare. Well, I think what you ladies are doing is amazing. Um, Tell everyone where they can find information that you guys share. I went and and looked at the Instagram and gave you guys a follow, but there's so much information there. So let everyone know where they can find you guys. Yeah. So um, we are on Instagram, Facebook. So Envy Fertility Advocates. Uh, We have a web page. We're actually getting ready to overhaul it a little bit. Um, But if you you can reach out through us through website or instagram or on facebook if you want to learn more uh, get signed up for our newsletter or learn more about our support groups um just reach out to us we you know like we mentioned we just got our five we've had our 501c3 stats for a little over a year so we're pretty brand new i'm just i'm helping to spread the word Um, while we don't offer you know direct coverage for services we can be a resource to help connect you with people who do or the support that you need Amazing. Uh, Amanda, Jessica, thank you guys so much for taking the time, sharing your stories, um, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, <laughs>